Good evening, everyone. And sorry, this episode is a little late. I got the COVID vaccine last week, which really kicked my butt for a few days with side effects. But anyway, last time, we talked about Robert Spitzer's origin story. But this week, we'll get to how he actually helped to build the DSM-3. But of course, Robert Spitzer was not alone in his efforts. Although the vast majority of psychiatrists in the United States by this point were now psychoanalysts, there were a tiny selection of psychiatrists who didn't subscribe to those ideas. Most notably, three psychiatrists at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, named Eli Robbins, Samuel Guse, and George Winokur. These three pointed out that mental illness had never been shown to be caused by unconscious conflicts, or, or really anything, and they thought that inferring or speculating diagnoses didn't make any sense. As a result of being one of the few bastions of non-psychoanalysis, Washington University's psychiatry department began to attract any students of psychiatry who disliked psychoanalytic ideas. One of those students was one John Fainer, who was an army physician to Vietnam War veterans, and was so disturbed by the psychic damage to veterans that he saw, he decided to train in psychiatry. In his third year of training, he met regularly with these three professors I mentioned, and he decided to try to develop diagnostic criteria for depression. He reviewed almost a thousand published articles, which, trust me, is a lot of articles to read, and then expanded his work to try to classify all mental illnesses. Feiner and crew found every paper they could on mental illness, and keep in mind that just finding these papers must have been a ton of work considering search engines didn't exist yet. Then they read all of those papers and debated classification criteria. Finally, in 1972, they published their system as the Diagnostic Criteria for Use in Psychiatric Research. But as per usual, it got shortened, becoming just the Feiner Criteria. Which sounds fake before you learn it's just the guy's last name. The paper ended with, quote, These symptoms represent a synthesis based on data, rather than opinion or tradition, end quote. A jab aimed right at psychoanalysts. And the timing of their paper was perfect. Just as Spitzer rose to prominence and was looking for a new data-based approach to reform the DSM-3, Fanner and his collaborators released their paper. Spitzer had actually met the Washington University folks in 1971, two years before he was asked to work on the DSM-3, and was intrigued. But when he needed to create the DSM-3 task force, he wanted to recruit psychiatrists interested in data-based diagnosis, and he knew just the folks. Luckily, if you'll recall, most psychiatrists of the time didn't really care about the DSM, which, while bad for the practice of psychiatry as a whole, was good in this specific instance, because when Spitzer wanted to recruit a bunch of non-psychoanalysts to his new DSM team, nobody stopped him. He appointed these psychiatrists to his team, made 25 committees in total, which each made descriptions for one group of mental illnesses, like anxiety disorders or mood disorders. Per Spitzer himself, the DSM-3 consumed his life. He worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and he roped his wife into it too, who had a doctorate in social work, even waking her up in the middle of the night to work. I'm pretty sure my girlfriend would kill me if I ever did that. As they kept working, Spitzer proposed some very radical changes to how mental illness should be diagnosed. Like the Washington University psychiatrists, he came to agree that there was really no empirical evidence of the specific causes of mental illness, despite what psychoanalysts might say. 
They threw out the causes of mental illness from the DSM entirely, and then replaced it with two new criteria for any diagnosis. One should sound pretty familiar, being the subjective distress criteria Spitzer proposed to declassify homosexuality as a mental illness. As a quick reminder, symptoms must be distressing to the individual, or impair the person's ability to function. The second new criteria for all mental illness proposed was that symptoms must be enduring. While this sounds really obvious in hindsight, it hadn't actually been considered much before. But what distinguishes being really sad from clinical depression? The ability to function and duration both serve as very good separators of depression from healthy ranges of human emotion. Being sad after something tragic is healthy and normal, but being so sad that you can't get out of bed for months at a time and feel suicidal is not healthy. These two new criteria, in combination with Krapelin's classification using symptoms and duration, was a huge change from how things had been done. Psychoanalysts were obsessed with causes, usually unprovable causes, and usually not obvious to the patient themselves, since they were caused by supposed unconscious conflicts. And while at first psychoanalysts didn't have much interest in the DSM, as time went on it became clear that Spitzer was going to change a lot in the DSM-3, and two groups of folks were not very happy. The first was psychologists, distinguished from psychiatrists by having a graduate school PhD degree, instead of a medical doctor's degree. Psychologists had actually been benefiting from the issues that psychiatrists had been facing, because if mental illness was a social problem, not a medical one, you didn't need to be a doctor to treat it, and psychologists had in recent years been gaining patients for therapy. As such, psychologists didn't like that the DSM-3 was trying to more clearly label mental illnesses explicitly as medical conditions. And to make things more confusing for us, we now have a third APA in the mix, the American Psychological Association, comprised of psychologists, as opposed to the American Psychiatric Association or the American Psychoanalytic Association. As such, I will just not use APA as an abbreviation, well, probably ever. But anyway, the American Psychological Association, upon learning about the DSM-3's new changes, was not happy. And so their president wrote a letter to Spitzer, which read, quote, I do not wish partisan conflict between our associations. In that spirit, the American Psychological Association wishes to offer its complete services to assist the American Psychiatric Association in the further development of the DSM-3, end quote, which is one of the nicest threats I've ever read. Spitzer wrote back and included a current draft of the DSM-3, which explicitly stated that mental illness was a medical condition basically nicely telling the Psychological Association's president that this is how it was and deal with it. In response, the psychological president threatened to have the American Psychological Association create its own separate DSM just for psychologists. Spitzer, though shrewd as he was, figured this was a bluff. Considering his own work schedule and the effort he and his team were putting in, he was pretty sure that the Psychological Association wouldn't actually be willing to put in the time and effort to make their own DSM. And he was right. However, this idea gave him an opening, so he wrote back encouraging the creation of a separate non-medical DSM, which never happened. This gave him the chance to deflect criticism from the psychologists, though, since they had said they'd make their own DSM, and so clearly didn't need his. Spitzer perhaps would have made for a good poker player. 
The psychologists were not the only unhappy folks, though, with regards to the DSM-3's changes. Psychoanalysts were, of course, outraged by the proposals. But also, kind of cocky, and they believed that even if published with the new changes, the DSM-3 couldn't possibly have much effect on them. After all, the DSM versions 1 and 2 hadn't done much of anything either. However, in 1977, a group of psychoanalysts asked Spitzer to postpone any further work on the DSM-3, until the American Psychoanalytical Association could review the work, and no doubt reduce its empirical and anti-psychoanalytic approach. The DSM task force turned them down. Over time, more and more psychoanalysts peppered the DSM task force with requests for changes to this and that, but Spitzer's arguments were based in empirical evidence and practical considerations, while the main argument in favor of psychoanalytic changes was basically that this is how we've always done it, which generally is considered a pretty bad argument in the sciences. In 1979, the final draft was done, and psychoanalysts were in full-out attack mode, threatening to boycott the DSM-3 and the American Psychiatric Association entirely if their demands were not met. In the days leading up to the vote that would ratify the new DSM, a number of changes were proposed again, and all were shot down. Among the 350 psychiatrists that were present for the vote, despite all the drama and resistance, the oral vote was resoundingly in favor of the new DSM. Spitzer, likely expecting outcry and further resistance, received a standing ovation, and reportedly teared up on stage. Even though psychoanalysts didn't like many of his changes, if you'll recall, psychiatry was being battered by a credibility crisis. Despite their objections, even the psychoanalysts understood that changes had to be made, and the new DSM offered their entire profession a new beginning. And the impact of the DSM-3, despite what psychoanalysts expected, turned out to be huge. Psychoanalytic theory was diminished forever in the profession, no longer being used in diagnosis or research. Spitzer's criteria could be used consistently across the country, almost to a fault. Insurance companies now would only pay for conditions listed in the DSM, and the rest of society quickly followed suit. Companies, schools, universities, pharmaceutical companies government agencies, the military, so many folks had wanted consistent psychiatric diagnoses, and so they all adopted the DSM-3 fairly quickly. This dictionary of mental illnesses, while expanded and modified over the years, has remained very similar, using its criteria based on patient distress, duration, symptoms, and course to this very day. Finally, over centuries of progress, mental illness could be fairly consistently diagnosed. And so, next week, now that we can diagnose mental illness pretty well, we'll begin to talk about advancements in treatments for those diagnoses. As always, thank you for listening, and if you like what you hear, tell a friend or leave a review. Thanks also to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music.